Please turn in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And our sermon this afternoon will build off of the morning sermon from two weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 9 through 15, as well as our afternoon sermon last week on Titus 2 verses 3 through 5 on biblical womanhood. Now this text is a hotly debated one among professing believers and they are good and godly men who fall on either side of the aisle when it comes to the practice of head coverings. We as the RPCNA do not take an official position and there is even disagreement in many congregations and even among those on the same session. But this morning, we'll look at this historical practice and we'll see it in its relation to a movement that is spreading like a cancer in our society as well as in the church. So with that in mind, lend your ear to the reading of God's most holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning at verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you, that I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering? But if any man seem to be contentious, We have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Thus far the reading of God's Word, let us ask His blessing upon it. O great God and King, we come unto Thee once again, thanking Thee for Thy Word which Thou hast preserved and kept pure through all ages. O Lord, as we approach this text which has been debated throughout history and within our own denomination and even 
uh, in the past in this congregation, we ask, Lord, that a spirit of charity would wash over us as we consider these things. That we would love one another and seek to edify one another, building one another up in Christ. O Lord, we ask that Thy Spirit would open our hearts to receive this Word with joy. Let us approach this Word openly, ready to be challenged by Thy Spirit. And let us see the wisdom and the truth contained in this text over and against the wicked sin of feminism within society today. O Lord, we ask that Thou wouldst feed us by Thy Word and let us trust that Thy Word is true and that we are to keep it with our whole hearts. O Lord, convict us where we need conviction. Show us the errors of our ways. Humble us where we need to be humbled. And show us how to love one another more. So feed us with the Word we pray this day. In Christ's name, Amen. In 1848, a convention was held in Seneca Falls, New York to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition of, and rights of women. This was the beginning of what is now known as the first wave of feminism in the United States. These original feminists focused their efforts on the abolition and temperance movements, and then they eventually became known for their fight for women's suffrage. Then in the 1960s and 70s, at the height of the sexual revolution, there came about what has become known as second wave feminism. These feminists became known for their uh, fight for quote-unquote women's liberation in regards to sexuality, the family, the home, the workplace, and reproduction. Most notably to come from this era of feminism in the secular culture was the landmark decision in 1973 known as Roe v. Wade which legalized abortion in the United States. Praise God that recently the Supreme Court has overturned that decision. But since 1973 and that decision, there have been over 60 million babies who have been legally murdered throughout our nation. Then in the 1990s, the third wave of fem feminism came about, which brought about an open hostility towards men. It embraced homosexuality, and then later on in more recent years, it embraced transgenderism. 
it has a disdain for the nuclear family and a hatred for Orthodox Christianity. And from where we stand today, it is safe to say that feminism has become the dominant voice in our culture today. All along uh, the way, the church has been susceptible to these wicked schemes. Mainline denominations began embracing feminist ideals long ago, and now most have accepted women in leadership in the church. They've embraced quote-unquote inclusivity of homosexuals, and some are even ordaining homosexuals to the, leader, uh, to the eldership. Truly, feminism is spreading like a cancer, and we must protect ourselves and our congregation from becoming infected. But while feminism may seem new, it really isn't. It's a curse of the fall found in Genesis chapter 3, and it's seen all throughout Scripture and it's argued against. Since this is a cancer that seeks to destroy all that God has made good, we must look to the Word for a cure. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul gives us a practically applied cure for feminism. So let's look first at what the cure is. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. The cure found here in our text is that of keeping the ordinances which the Lord has delivered by His apostles. Paul begins this portion of his letter to the Corinthians by praising them for keeping that which he delivered unto them. Some of your translations may say traditions here instead of ordinances. And that might cause you to think that what he's speaking of is simply man-made tradition and not the command of God. But that's not what he's saying. That's why the way our authorized version translates it as ordinances is better. Because these are the teachings, the instructions, the doctrines, the practices that the apostles received from the Lord Jesus Christ and delivered unto the people. What is the only infallible rule for life and godliness? It is the Scripture alone. If you are to fight against any sin in your life, you must do so on the basis of the Word of God. If you are to fight against any sinful encroachment upon your life or upon the church, then you must do so on the basis of the Word of God. Nothing else will suffice. Nothing else will be effective it is to the ordinances of god 
delivered unto you in His Word that you must make use of in combating the plague of sin, whether it be in your own heart or in the congregation or out there in society. And the primary ordinance that is given in the Word of God and ought to be used in fighting the cancer of feminism is the clear teaching on headship and submission. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now we must be careful when seeking to understand this passage lest we fall into grievous error or even heresy. What does he mean when he says that the head of Christ is God? Well, he's speaking of Christ in his mediatorial role, in his position as the God-man, not in his essence as the second person of the Trinity. Ontologically, meaning in His essence, Christ is equal to the Father. But in His mediatorial role, Christ has subjected Himself to the Father so that God is His head. On this, Calvin writes, God then occupies the first place. Christ holds the second place. How so? Inasmuch as He has in our flesh made Himself subject to the Father, for apart from this, being of one essence with the Father, He is His equal. Let us therefore bear it in mind that this is spoken of Christ as mediator. He is, I say, inferior to the Father inasmuch as He assumed our nature that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is important. And it's important when seeking to understand the doctrine of headship. God is in the first place. Christ is in the second. And then comes man. The head of every man is Christ. Now this isn't to say that there's no one who can have authority over a man as if Paul is advocating for some sort of anarchy. But what it is saying is that man stands in an elevated place due to his being the immediate creation of God as we'll see later. And then, the head of the woman is the man. There's a definite and unchangeable difference of rank in terms of authority that is rooted in God's uh, eternal design for creation. Now, saying this is like pouring gasoline on a fire to feminist thought. It makes them rage and seethe with anger. This is slavery. This is cruelty. This is tyranny. That's what they all cry. But this is only because they don't understand what's being taught here. Ladies, you are not inferior to man in your essence any more than Christ Jesus 
is inferior to his father in his essence. But just as there is a superiority and an inferiority in regards to rank between uh, God the Father and Jesus Christ the Mediator, so too is there a superiority and inferiority in regards to rank between men and women. Man is the head of woman. He is her authority. And there must be submission to that authority. This has been shown numerous times over the last two weeks. The submission of wives to husbands is the command of the Lord. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Timothy 2, verses 3-5 The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. First Peter three one. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head. Uh, I'm sorry, in subjection to your own husbands. Ephesians five twenty two and twenty three. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Friends, this teaching cannot be avoided, and it cannot be excused away. And it is like a scalpel to the cancerous tumor of feminism. Feminism cannot stand where the ordinances of biblical headship are present because it is the cure. The Apostle goes on to say that there must be a practice of this headship that is visible in the worship of God. Every man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonoreth his head, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all the one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But, it is, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of men. Men show their position in the rank of headship by being in the public assembly with their heads uncovered. For some reason, this hasn't been contested for uh, the most part of the vast majority of, in, in the vast majority of churches. You almost never walk into a congregation and see a man with their hat on. Men know that when they go to church or when someone says the prayer, that they are to remove their hats out of respect to Christ. To not do so is to bring shame upon Him. 
And the converse ought to be understood for women as well. Women show their position and rank of headship by being in the public assembly with their heads covered. But for some reason, you can walk into almost any congregation in the United States and see virtually no women with their heads covered. Why the disconnect between men and women? Well, I would argue that in our culture, in the church today, it just has been neglected for so long that most women have never even thought about it. Friends, everything you do, even the attire that you wear, ought to be reflective of who you are either as a man or a woman. Men are called not to be cross-dressers, not wearing the clothing of a woman. Women are told not to wear the the attire of a man. That passage in the Old Testament literally speaks of putting on the armor of a man, meaning to portray oneself as a soldier, uh, which is a man's position. We'll see later uh, Paul speak of hair. Your hairstyle should uh, symbolize who you are as a man or a woman. But then there is proper attire for the assembly as well, the sacred assembly. And that ought to be reflective of who you are as a man or a woman. Now you may be sitting there thinking, yes, I agree with you. And that's why I dress in feminine clothing. And that's why I have long hair. After all, Paul does say in verse 15 that her hair is given to her as a cover. Friends, I want to be gentle, as gentle as possible when addressing these kinds of objections because I truly believe that they stem from a desire to understand the passage and to apply it rightly. But that argument makes nonsense of what Paul is actually saying. Look at verses 5 and 6 and see if replacing the word covering with hair makes any sense. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with short hair dishonoreth her head, for that is even all the one as if she were shaven. But if the woman have short hair, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her have short hair. It makes what he's saying nonsensical. Especially when you consider the fact that the the word shorn doesn't mean shaven. That's translated shaven here in our text. Shorn actually means cut short. For if the woman have short hair, let her also be cut short. But if it be a shame for a woman to have short hair or shaven, let her have short hair. See how it makes no sense. And to add to this, the fact that the word he uses in verse 15, that the hair is a covering, is a completely different one than what's used here in verse 6. The original Greek proves 
that what he has in mind is actually a cloth placed over the head. And the reason that he speaks of the hair being a covering is because he's proving that even nature testifies to the fact that there must be a covering over the woman. And the natural covering that she is given is her glory. And that's why it must be covered. Because her hair has given her a glory, but she is the glory of man. She must not take that glory away. This natural truth is applied to the necessity of wearing an additional cloth on the head as a sign of submission in the church. To argue that Paul is not saying an additional covering should be worn is to go against every scholar and commentator on this text, even those who disagree with the continuation of this practice. Every one of them understands Paul is speaking of a physical covering. The, the argument of the hair being a covering is actually something that's new and never came about until the 1960s. Friends, this practice is the God-ordained practical expression of biblical headship. And that's why feminists hate it. I want to ask the question again, why is it that men overwhelmingly still continue the practice of worshiping with their heads uncovered, but women overwhelmingly have done away with the covering? Is there some new theological insight that has come about in the last 60 years that has caused this practice to be done away with? No. What there has been is the rise and influence of feminism in the church. R.C. Sproul makes this connection. It does disturb me that the tradition of the woman covering her head in America did not pass away until we saw a cultural revolt against the authority of the husband over the wife. That's the great uh, R.C. Sproul. Or maybe you need to hear it from the feminists themselves. This comes from the statement made by the National Organization for Women in 1968. They say, Whereas the wearing of a head covering by women at religious services is a custom in many churches, and whereas it is a symbol of subjection within those churches, now recommends that all chapters undertake an effort to have all women participate in a national unveiling by sending their head coverings to the task force chairman at the spring meeting of the task force of women and religion these veils will be publicly burned to protest the second class status of women in all churches The feminists themselves understand this symbol of submission and they hate it. The practice of head covering has been virtually and in some instances physically destroyed by the influx of feminism in the society and the church. They literally called for Christian women to send in their head coverings for a burning. 
Because they hate this symbol so much. The most practical and visible way in which you can proclaim to the world that you uphold the biblical teaching on headship and you abhor the wicked ideology of the feminists is by wearing a head covering. You know immediately where someone stands on this issue just by that simple example that they are setting. You walk in those doors and you know immediately that someone holds to biblical headship and submission if they are wearing a covering in the church. Well, perhaps you're sitting there and you're still not convinced. Maybe you hold to the position that yes, this is a physical head covering that Paul is speaking of, but it was just pertaining to the culture of his time. Well, this is the position of most scholars today. And it's even the position of some giants of the Reformed faith like John Calvin and Matthew Henry. Although men like John Calvin and Matthew Henry would say that it's still necessary for women to cover even though they held it was a cultural thing. Well, in order to see if the cultural argument holds weight, we must consider what bases what, what Paul bases uh, his argument for the head covering in. The first basis is in creation. Look at verses seven to nine. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. The order of creation shows forth the rank and headship, which is what is symbolized in the head covering. This is the same argument that he makes for women's Subjection and silence in the church, the reason why she is not to teach or usurp authority over men in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's the same argument. So if the head covering is cultural, why is male only leadership in the church not cultural as well? Since the same root argument is being made. Well, egalitarians use this as an argument for why there can be women in leadership in the church. Why shouldn't we? Because the fact of the matter is that creation is not cultural. That's the point of Paul using creation in his argument is to show that they have an everlasting foundation upon which uh, they are built. These arguments are not built on shaky ground. They are built on an everlasting foundation that is eternal and rooted in creation. The created order cannot change, and therefore that which flows forth from the created order cannot change. That's why we do not have women leaders in the church 
And the same argument is made for why women ought to wear a head covering. Creation, not culture. But creation is not the only basis for his argument. He goes on to argue that the, uh, that the practice has a heavenly foundation as well. Look at verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now that, that word that's translated have power on her head means having a symbol of authority or a symbol of power. Some of your translations actually say symbol of authority. Paul gives us flat out the reason why women ought to have a symbol of authority on their heads. Because of the angels. Now this is perhaps one of the most perplexing verses in all of Scripture. I will admit that. What does it mean when he says that it's because of the angels? The note in the Geneva Bible basically says, I don't know. That's a helpful study note there. But that doesn't seem to be a good answer. Scripture actually helps us to understand what He means. He helps us to understand this. We know from the book of Revelation that there are angels at the churches spoken of there in the churches in Asia. Hebrews 12 and verses 22 through 24 actually gives us even more insight into the meaning of this. But ye are come unto the Mount of Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all and to uh, the spirits of the just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Friends, when you go unto Sion, when you go unto that heavenly place in which God meets with His people, which is in the presence, uh, uh, which, is, which in this present age is the church, when you gather together in the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, you are in an innumerable company of angels. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the Scripture teaches that when Christians meet together and when they gather together in prayer, then the angels of God are present. And the women are to be covered when they take part in the public prayer because of the presence of the angels. It is a tremendous and a remarkable thing. It's likely that what Paul is speaking of when he says that women are to cover because of the angels is that the angels are present here among us and they see if we are worshiping in accordance to the Word. What a great offense it would be to a sinless being to go from the perfect worship of Jehovah in heaven to then seeing man neglecting uh, his, his worshipful duty and worshiping uh, according to his own wishes. 
The angels are among us. And they see us worship. And according to other Scriptures, they report back to the Father the happenings of, of His people. Whatever this phrase means here because of the angels, it's something wholly outside of culture. And the final basis upon which Paul makes his argument is for nature. It is, is by nature. Look at verses 13 to 15. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is, her, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Every one of us here knows the, the natural way in which God has ordered for men and for women to be different and that this natural ordering extends even to our appearances. It is a shameful thing for a man to have long hair. It's an act of rebellion against the intended nature of man. And in fact, who is it that is most frequently uh, seeing who grows out their hair? It's those who are showing forth their rebellion. It's the punk rockers. It's the metalheads. It's the hippies. And now it's the hipsters. And in their rebellion, they are taking on the appearance of a woman. Can't tell you how many times I've been standing in line and there was someone in front of me and I addressed them as ma'am and they turned around and it was a man. Impossible to tell because of the long hair. Or how effeminate is it to see a man stand up before the assembly wearing skinny jeans and a man bun? It's effeminate. It's womanly. They take on the appearance of a woman. The shame, uh, the same shame is then brought on uh, a woman who has short hair just as it is with a man who has long hair. What's one of the first things that a woman does when she embraces feminism? Almost always, she cuts her hair either short into a butch masculine style or she shaves it completely. Women know just as Scripture teaches here that her long hair is her glory, her display of living within the, na the natural order. That's why when they want to rebel against the natural order, they cut it off. So if it's natural that a woman have a natural covering, Paul argues she should then cover that glory with an artificial covering as well. So if the principle is argued from nature, can it be said that it's cultural? Now be careful how you answer that question because this argument based in nature is Paul's argument against homosexuality in Romans chapter 1. 
To be consistent in making head coverings a cultural argument, you would have to say the same thing about Romans 1 and homosexuality. Literally, the exact same words are used between the two. Unnatural, speaking of the unnatural affections, and nature, speaking of what nature testifies to. Speaking on Romans 1, Kevin DeYoung, who, as far as I know, does not hold to the practice of head coverings, says, with these allusions to the creation in the background, or the foreground really, nature must mean more than prevailing customs and social norms. Is nature cultural? If you're going to be consistent and say that the head covering is cultural when Paul uses an argument from nature, you must say that when he uses that same argument in Romans 1, that he is saying homosexuality is cultural. But thank God most who hold to the cultural view of head coverings are inconsistent in applying that same hermeneutic elsewhere. Praise God for inconsistencies. It seems that, uh, that, that from looking at the text itself, Paul's arguments all transcend culture. They're applicable to all cultures at all times and in all places. Creation. Angels. Nature. Which one of those is culture? In fact, when you dig into the culture of Corinth at that time, there is not a single shred of evidence to indicate that Paul was making a cultural argument, even knowing the culture of Corinth at that time. And so if the arguments that Paul makes within the text are all transcultural, then they cannot be confined to a single place in time and must be applied in all. And now finally, I want us to end by considering verse 16. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. This is something that we all need to be mindful of no matter which side of the aisle you are on on the issue. You must not be contentious. If you wear a head covering, do not look down upon those who do not, thinking that, uh, thinking that they are more worldly or, or less godly than you are. And if you don't wear a head covering, don't look down upon those who do, thinking that they're legalistic or they are just stuck in their old ways. Things like this can cause great amounts of contention within the body and that can destroy a congregation. Hold your conviction with love, with charity, 
with grace. But make sure that it truly is a conviction and not just an opinion. Have biblical reasoning for whatever it is that you hold to. And those of you who do not hold to this practice, I want to challenge you to look and see if you are in step with what the Apostle teaches here. He says that if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Friends, this was the universal practices of all churches at the time that he was writing this. And it remained the near universal practice of the church for 1900 years. Why go against that? What is there to lose by submitting yourself to this teaching and wearing a head covering? Like I said, we as a denomination do not take an official stance on this matter. But it seems clear that the Apostle Paul does. Brothers and sisters, I'm thankful that the Lord has preserved this congregation against the evil influx of feminism in the church. May we all stand upon these biblical principles of headship and submission and stand firm against the wave of feminism that we would not give it any ground here in this place. May we seek to show forth our commitment to this truth in all that we do. Let us seek to live our lives in conformity to God's Word and His ordinances. And let us uphold the precepts of the Lord which are true and righteous altogether. Let us pray. O Lord, we come unto Thee and we are thankful that Thou hast given us an answer to such a wicked, wicked ideology. That that answer is biblical headship. O oh Lord, let us never seek to usurp that headship which Thou hast created and ordered for all mankind. Let us seek to uphold it and uphold it with gladness and joy, submitting to the positions that Thou hast ordained for us, whether that be men or women. O oh Lord, let us not fall prey to the ideas and, and practices of the feminists of our day. Preserve our men from the, the danger of effeminacy. of wearing attire that is only fit for women, of giving off the appearance of a woman. Let us have clear, visible distinctions between the sexes so that there is no confusion, no, no possibility of confusion. Lord, protect our ladies 
from the enticement of the devil towards these ideologies. We know that from Genesis chapter 3, that their desire will be for their husband. That part of the curse is to usurp authority. Protect our ladies from that. Protect them from falling into the snare that is so difficult to break. And let them portray themselves, convey themselves as godly, holy women in the faith. Feminine and beautiful. Oh Lord, let us never uh, lose sight of these things. Especially as we enter into Thy presence and worship. That we may keep the ordinances which Thou hast given us for the sake of decency and order within the church. Lord, we pray that Thou wouldst preserve our congregation from contentions, from arguments, from strife. That a practice such as this would not be one that divides the congregation. O oh Lord, keep us all from being contentious. For it is something that we can all be tempted to fall into. Most importantly, Lord, let everything that we do bring glory and honor to Thy name. Whether we eat, drink, or whatsoever we do, let it all be to the glory of the Lord. So Lord, we ask Thy blessing would be upon the Word preached just now. Apply it to our hearts. And let us meditate upon that Word as we depart from here this day. We ask Thy blessing would be upon the remainder of our service. Lord, continue to feed us. Cause us to be strengthened and to grow. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.